0: What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast. We continue on this week in our study in the full armor of God. We're gonna read from Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 18 to kick us off. If you've been with, Uh, the podcast through this particular series. You've probably about got this passage memorized. Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 18. This is what it says. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your waist girded with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the fiery arrows of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit always with all kinds of prayer and supplication to that end to be alert with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Amen. Uh, Well, we are on the helmet of salvation today. I remember um, one night long ago, this was back while I was in the Marines. I don't even remember where we were at at the time, but we were doing some kind of nighttime insert somewhere. Uh, I remember I said at one point a few weeks ago that a lot of what we did was mundane and boring and just kind of sitting around waiting for something to happen. But this particular night wasn't one of those times. It was actually quite interesting. I think there were three teams of us And we were each in a Blackhawk helicopter and we were being flown in and dropped somewhere in the middle of the night. And what made this so cool or fun, I suppose, whatever, I don't know, is that we were all blacked out. There were no lights inside or on the helicopters. We didn't have any lights among us. And we were flying through the mountains and canyons at night. The pilots must've been wearing night vision, I guess. And they were staying pretty low. I suppose they were doing that to... uh, Avoid radar detection, whatever it might have been. But sometimes you could look out the side of the helicopter as it was open on both sides, and you could see the the mountainside traveling by. Uh, it was it was pretty cool. Sometimes you might slow down. Sometimes you might speed up. You could feel the helicopter move, but you couldn't really see what was going on because everything was so dark. You could feel a sudden gain or loss of elevation. You could feel the helicopter pitch and roll as the pilot flew with the contour of the land. When you're in that kind of a situation and you get close to your destination, there's some kind of signal to let you know uh, that you're about to disembark. And when that happens, you check your gear one last time. Maybe you take your magazine out of your rifle, you tap it on your helmet, make sure the rounds are firmly seated in place. And one of the very last things you do is you make sure that your helmet is firmly fastened on your head. You make sure the chin strap is snapped and it is securely in place. When you get to that point, you know it's about time to get down to business. Uh, I've often seen something similar in movies, you probably have too. One of the last things to be done before battle is everyone puts on their helmet. Verse 17 of our passage today says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And our focus today is on take the helmet of salvation. Paul tells us both to take up and put on the whole armor of God, receive it, wear it, continue to wear it, keep on wearing it. Um, He says, take the helmet of salvation. Interesting thing about the helmet of salvation is that uh, salvation is something we receive when we accept Jesus as our savior. And that's not something that we are able to take off, to toss aside. It's permanent. Obviously, that's not something we would want to do anyway, but it's something we have when we come to know Jesus. And the word Paul uses, uh, the different two different words Paul uses here, uh, translated for Greek, for taking up taking for taking the helmet of salvation and taking up the whole armor of God are actually two different words. The one used for armor means to reach out, to grasp something, to take something. Whereas the one used when Paul says, take the helmet of salvation means to receive. So you receive the helmet of salvation. You receive that when you receive Christ as your savior the English standard version of the Bible says, "Accept the helmet of salvation. Maybe that helps clarify a little bit of what Paul is telling us here. Paul, obviously we've mentioned this many times, but he's using metaphors to help us better understand how to employ these different aspects of the Christian life, which are uh, these different metaphors are represented by the different metaphors of the pieces of armor to live a life, a godly life, that will withstand the attacks of the enemy. And again, as we look at each piece of the armor, one of the things that we've seen cons- to be consistent throughout the different pieces of armor is that each one really does find its salvation or find its um, foundation in salvation and in obedience to Christ. Those two things, they sum up Christian life. They really do. Salvation is found in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Obedience is part of the ongoing work of sanctification. We're saved and then we will obey. And I personally found it interesting as we look at these uh, different pieces of armor, not something I really was expecting when I dove off into this is that how you can view these different pieces of armor from a couple of different perspectives. They're the same thing, but viewed from different directions, different angles. And looking at both of those angles gives us a better understanding of each of the pieces of the whole armor of God. And of course, as we look at the helmet of salvation, we receive salvation when we understand and believe the gospel and trust Christ as our savior. That's well understood. At the same time there's ascension which we continue to take up the helmet of salvation. We engage it, use it as part of the whole armor of God, not in, you know, we don't, it's not in a take it on and off kind of way, um, set it aside, pick it up, put it down, pick it up, lose it, earn it kind of way. That's not what we're talking about but using it in such a way as as engaging it as part of the whole armor of God, where it finds its place, where it fits in with that. And it helps us live our lives as Christians, helping us to stand firm in the strength of the Lord against the schemes of the devil. And that's what we're talking about. The helmet of salvation is essential headgear. To have it, you must know Jesus as your savior, believe that Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for the remission of sin. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one comes to the father except through him. Very basic doctrine that Christians know. Salvation is something that every believer receives when they trust Jesus. That's something you always have. That is the helmet of salvation. Now, how do we engage that helmet as part of the whole armor of God? That's the question we're asking today. That's what we're looking to learn, looking to discover? Well, I think the first question to ask is what does a helmet do? Whether it's a motorcycle helmet, a bicycle helmet, maybe a Kevlar helmet that a soldier wears into battle, whatever kind of helmet it is, a helmet is meant to protect your head. And to dig into this a little more, let's think back to the breastplate of righteousness in that, remembering that it protects our heart in talking about the heart in this case we're not talking about the physical muscle of the heart i think you probably understand that we're talking about what would be considered the seat of human emotion love empathy compassion things like that the breastplate of righteousness protects those things, protects the seat of human emotion. Now, when we talk about the helmet of uh, salvation and it protecting our head, in this case, we're, we're not talking about the, the, our physical head. We're talking about the seat of our identity in our intellect. That's what's protected by the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is protecting or is protection for our identity, it's protection for our reasoning, it's protection for our understanding, it's protection for how we process information, it's protection for how we navigate the world and live our life. And our head and our heart are very closely linked. If we, if I were to differentiate between our head and our heart, um, we really can't operate one without the other. Uh, we can kind of lean towards one or the other, but... They're very, very closely linked, but to differentiate them, I would say that the heart has more to do with how we feel and our head has more to do with how we think, but at the same time, what we think affects how we feel, how we feel affects what we think. Now, to live righteously in obedience to Christ, our head and our heart need to be working in tandem. They work together. Now, we've all seen times probably, well, most of us have probably seen times when someone has acted solely on feelings without intellect. Maybe they just acted out of emotion. They don't think something through. And when that happens, things don't go very well. And we've probably also seen a time when someone's acted solely on intellect without emotion, without compassion, And that doesn't go very well either. When we look at the life of Jesus, he was very compassionate, but he was also very intellectual. He was the perfect example, as we see in the gospels, of a heart and a mind working perfectly in tandem with each other, working from a place of compassion and intellect. And a good goal for a Christian is to work towards our heart and our head working together to their full capacity, acting on both our intellect and our compassion while still finding our identity in Christ. That's a great thing to work towards. But the reality is, is that often one of those things tends to get the better of the other, they're out of balance, one overrides the other, they tend to go back and forth, kind of like a a seesaw on a playground. And when that happens, how we feel and what we think tend to create a feedback loop that can significantly influence how we act. So we put on the breastplate of righteousness by living in obedience to Christ. When we act in disobedience and we remove that breastplate, we leave our heart open to attack, we leave our compassion, emotions open to attack. And when you think about that, disobedience does affect how we feel. We feel it when we disobey. When we sin, we feel terrible, or at least you feel terrible if you're a follower of Jesus, you should. And then that feeling can lead to poor thinking. Like I'm such a failure, or a "failure," my life's so terrible or things so bad, or you know, I don't think God really loves me. And then we might try to do something good to atone for something that we've done bad, but really we're not trying to atone for anything. We're just really trying to make ourselves feel better and it doesn't work anyway. And you can see how that works itself out. If we aren't doing what we know we should be doing, doubt tends to creep in. Then a feeling of despair, a lack of peace, a lack of security, all of these things and anxiety that comes along with that breastplate of righteousness is kept in place by living in obedience to Christ. It protects our heart. The helmet of salvation is protection for our intellect. It's protection for our identity. In salvation, we are identified with Christ. We become his follower. He becomes our savior. That is our identity. Identity because of my sin and my inability to reconcile myself with God, I need a savior. I'm helpless in that regard. But at the same time, God places enough value on me to send his son, Jesus, to shed his blood on the cross for me. That's my identity. That's my helmet of salvation. And I take the helmet of salvation as part of the armor of God when I process information and problem solve and navigate the world through that identity and what God says is true. Like I said, there's a very deep connection between our heart and our mind, which are protected by the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. One protection comes from what we do, how we act at the breastplate of righteousness. We act in a righteous way. And the other protection, the helmet of salvation protection uh, comes from what we think. It's our identity. It's our intellect. And if we're not actively doing what we should be doing or thinking what and how we should be thinking, we're not going to have in our possession the peace, the hope, the love, and the assurance that we are afforded as believers. And as we think about these things, I want you to consider this. I wish I could ask you in person and hear your answer about what you might think this is. But what is the single most damaging blow that Satan can deliver to a Christian, maybe pause this and type an answer in the comments just out of curiosity and let me know what you think first, but I'll give you the answer. Now, it's not sin, okay? sin, Satan can't deliver a blow of sin. Sin is our decision. We talked about this last week. Uh, we, we we can't say the devil made me do it because we decide to sin. So, Satan doesn't have the power to force our behavior, to manipulate Um, what we do. It's our decision. When we sin, that's on us. It's our responsibility. Now, the most damaging blow that Satan can deliver is actually the precursor to sin. It's doubt. It's doubt. Many of the things that Christians fret about are distractive child's play compared to doubt we often look out in the world and we see all these things that upset us and what's going on. And we worry about and think, oh, the world's so bad. And Satan's out there doing all these things in the world. When the reality is, is he's right here trying to work in us, trying to get us to doubt. And what people often don't see is how Satan is so deceptive in that way. Underneath all of that worry, the concern, the fretting are the seeds of subtle doubt. That have been planted by Satan. When you think about it, who's really in charge? You know, when people start asking, is God able to do anything about this? What's going on? That's the same questions that people ask uh, who don't believe in God. Why God doesn't God fix this? Doubt starts in your mind. It starts in your mind, and then you have to reason that doubt out for it to take hold. Okay, Satan can't make you doubt. You decide to doubt. He can just plant the seeds in the garden. Satan planted the seed in Eve's mind. He said to her, did God really say, he planted that seed of doubt, did God really say that? Now be careful and think about that and what went down and what actually happened in the garden. Satan asked Eve, did God really say not to eat that, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And then and then he tells her, he says, if you eat it, you won't die, which was kind of true. She wasn't going to die right then, but she would die eventually. He says, Your eyes will be opened, you'll gain knowledge, which again, that's not untrue. You'll be you'll be like God in that you will know good from evil, which was not untrue, but Eve didn't really understand what that meant. And then listen to what happens next in Genesis chapter three, verse six. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, okay, so she's reasoned out, hey, it looks good to eat. It looks good to eat and that it was pleasing to the eyes. It looks nice. And it's a tree desirable to make one wise. I'm going to gain knowledge from this. She took of its fruit and she ate and she gave to her husband with her and he he ate. Now, do you see the process that Eve went through there? Eve reasoned herself into doubt. That's what we do when we sin. We reason ourselves into doubt. We reason ourselves into sin. We talk ourselves into believing that what sin has to offer is better than what God says is best. And that's the most damaging blow Satan can deliver is doubt. And he, all he can do is plant the seeds. We have to reason it out in our own mind. Doubt happens in your mind. It's reasoned out. Yes, we have salvation the moment we know Jesus is our savior. The helmet of salvation is ours from that point forward. But Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. And he also says, take up, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm in the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation protects our intellect and our identity from the deadly battering of doubt. Now, there are a couple of verses that we can build on to help us better understand that. And one of them is First Thessalonians 5 which says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation as a helmet the hope of salvation we all do this at times we look around at the world or our situation our life things that may be going on and we see how terrible things are and we can't we say to ourselves i can't believe things have gotten so bad this is so awful um, you know, I just can't, I can't believe God would let this happen to me. Why is God doing this to me? There's different things we might ask, you know, and our hope is, is blown away like a leaf in the slightest breeze of doubt. I, I saw an article last week um, about the Dodgers baseball team. Some of you have probably seen the same article, heard about it, or read different articles. I'm sure it was all over the internet. But there's a group of guys who uh, cross dress as nuns. And they call themselves, and I can. It's, this is comical. I can't even say it with a straight face. But they call themselves the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And I think about that. and I'm like, yeah, of course they do. What else would they call themselves? Anyway, the Dodgers have a gay bride night. Whatever. Uh, you know they they have uh, uh, they were going to give the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence an award for the charity work they do. They do charity work. That's great. Um, You know, sporting teams have theme nights and things like this, and this just happened to be one of those. And there was a conservative backlash over the fact that they were going to have the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence at this baseball game and give them an award. And then, lo and behold, uh, the Dodgers changed their mind. They decided not to invite them or uninvited them or whatever they might have done. And then there was a backlash from gay pride groups. So the Dodgers changed their mind again, and they invited them back again. And they're just blown back and forth by whoever happens to shout the loudest. Now, I'm not a Catholic or Dodgers fan, so I'm not really that invested. But the reaction from the Christian side of that fence was just like the reaction from the sister's of perpetual indulgence side of the fence. If you didn't know what the issue was and you didn't know uh, what either side believed out, you know, if you didn't know who they were outside of the fact that one of them is obviously cross-dressing, so would be able to pick out. But if you couldn't do that, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart by their behavior. And for Christians, that's something to think about. That raises a question. Where's your hope? Where is your hope? Now for the cross-dressing nuns, I know where their hope is. Their hope lies in the behavior of people. They hope to get people to do something. Um, and when that's the case, people tend to be less stable. They act out more they shout, they carry on, whatever. They're constantly upset because the behavior of people rarely lines up with what we want it to be. I've been in ministry for a while now and I know that um, dealing with people and trying to get them to go in a certain direction and do certain things is often like herding cats. You kind of just have to share information and then allow people to do whatever they're gonna do with it. But when you place your hope in the behavior of people, your hope is on unstable ground because people change and act differently all the time. But for Christians, constantly blown about by the behavior of people, I ask, you know, where does their hope lie? The ones who are reacting in exactly the same way, the conservative side, Christian side, and the, the gay bride side, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the exact same thing. And they're acting in the same way. And I know where the hope of the cross-dressing nuns lies, but I would ask the Christians, where does your hope lie? And if, if they were asked directly, um, no doubt, they would quickly say, my hope is in Jesus. But then I would say, is it though? Is it really? If someone is so distraught that they just can't believe what the world is coming to. It's a constant problem. If cross dressings, nuns showing up at a sporting event steal away a believer's joy and peace, that believer's hope is in the behavior of people. And I have to ask, okay, where's your helmet? What have you done with it? That's not to say we don't do our part. As Christians, to make the world the best place we can, we do good things to credit the message of the gospel. It doesn't mean that we are okay with degeneracy. Not at all. That's not what I mean. But we know our Savior lives. We find our identity in Him. We find our hope in Him. We find our peace in Him. We draw assurance from Him. We know He's coming back. He's given us commands not to control us just to tell us what to do, but to show us how to navigate life in a fallen world. And that's what shapes our intellect. That's what shapes our reasoning. That's how we make decisions. That's how we problem solve. And when we are doing that, we can live life like the old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I'm a child of God. I'm part of his kingdom. Take the helmet of salvation. It protects from the traumatizing blow of doubt, doubting what God says, doubting what God does, uh, doubting our relationship with God, placing our hope in the behavior of people. I have to be, you know, to, to have joy, people have to behave a certain way, being distracted by what the world does. Remember, Paul tells us to. Put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand, to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. In battle, you either attack, you retreat, or you stand firm. We're told to put on the whole armor of God so that we are able to stand, to stand firm in place. Now think about this. In battle, you attack, you retreat, you stand firm, When do you stand firm? When do you stand firm? You stand firm when you have the high ground. You stand firm when you already have the tactical advantage. Stand firm. In salvation, you already hold the high ground in drawing your identity, having your identity, finding your identity in Christ. You're already standing on the firm foundation of the gospel. Satan wants you to draw you away from that, either through attack, either through retreat. He wants to get you away from that tactical position. He wants to get you away from that high ground so he can attack your heart and your mind. He wants you to doubt. He wants you to forget. He wants you to act in disobedience. He wants you to forget that you are standing on the high ground. You have the tactical advantage and that's where you should stand firm on Christ, the solid rock. Take the helmet of salvation. Settle yourself in your identity in Christ. Let the world do what it's going to do. Think on the commands of Jesus. They shape and protect your intellect. Place your hope in him to find your peace in him. You know, sometimes we forget that. We really do. All right, one last thing to help us fasten this helmet of salvation to keep it firmly in place. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. This is what it says. It says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Doubt is an attack on the mind. Doubt is something we reason out. To put on the helmet of salvation, first, we must accept it. To find our identity in Christ, first, we must accept him. Then we live and we think in obedience to him. Paul writes, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is what we are reasonably supposed to do which is a bit of a paraphrase of what he says, but that's the gist of it. That's what we're reasonably supposed to do, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's what we should reasonably do. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world. Now the word conformed means shaped from the outside in, kind of like molded from the outside in. And uh, that's often meant, or taken to mean fall into the behavior of the world about how you act, which is not entirely untrue. That that could be applied here for sure. But it's also about letting the world shape how you think. Letting the world steal your joy, steal your peace. If, if the world is shaping you the way you think by stealing away that joy and peace, you are being shaped by the world. Fasten your helmet. Don't... <laughs> let that blow of doubt crush your intellect. Don't let it crush your joy. Don't let it crush your peace. To be transformed, on the other hand, in opposition to conformed, means to be shaped from the inside out by the renewing of your mind, that, as Paul says, you may prove the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. When we talk about proving the will of God, It's not just verbal proof. It's not like a verbal argument that says uh, or or that proves it to be true. What this means is to put it to the test, like a proof test. A proof test is a stress test that is used to demonstrate the fitness of a load-bearing or impact-experiencing structure. That's what a proof test is. We prove or proof tests God's will by doing it. We put it under stress by building our life on it. We make it the load bearing structure of our life. Doing so renews our mind, helping us to put more and more weight and stress on what God says. We structure our intellect on our identity in Christ and his commands. And as we are transformed, we are growing that, as we put more and more stress, faith on God's word, and we build our life on that, our mind is renewed. And when that happens, our helmet can better deflect the impact of Satan's attacks of doubt. So take the helmet as part of the whole armor of God. Take it, wear it, accept Christ, act and think in obedience to Christ, not just act, but also think in obedience to Christ. Proof test God's will and commands as the load bearing structure of your life. Build your life on those things. Talk to you next week. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful.